BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. If debit is your go-to card, Discover thinks it's time you get rewarded too. So check out Discover Cashback Debit, a game-changing checking account with cashback on everyday debit card purchases. That's right. Cashback isn't just for credit cards anymore. Whether it's a movie date, flea market find, or midday latte, you can start earning cash back. And did I mention there are no fees, period? Check out transaction eligibility and terms at discover.com slash cashback debit. Discover Bank, member FDIC. Welcome back to part two of our three-episode journey into the making of Peter Jackson's The Lord of the Rings. Folks, if you haven't listened to part one, I encourage you to do so now. But before we begin, a quick recap. We last witnessed our intrepid heroes, Peter Jackson and Fran Walsh, as they walked into the last studio in town willing to hear their pitch to bring The Lord of the Rings to the big screen. Upon arriving at New Line Cinema, they were told by the studio head, Bob Shea, that what they'd walked into was, in effect, a courtesy meeting. However... This intrepid duo from New Zealand, armed with the wonderful design of countless artists back home at Weta Digital and Weta Workshop, somehow managed to save their film at the last minute. New Line not only wanted to back the movie, they wanted to make it a trilogy. Hell yeah. Hell yeah. Well, what Peter Jackson didn't know is that New Line was in a bit of a dry spell. They had had a series of flops, which would culminate in Warren Beatty's Town and Country, a near $100 million big-time flopper. Yeah, big-time flopper. We covered it on this podcast. Check out our episode. It uh, made $10 million against its $100 million budget, and they were actively looking for franchise opportunities. In fact, Bob Shea had just finished a frustrating period of pursuit and development on an adaptation of Isaac Asimov's Foundation that would never come to fruition. Yes, of course, now a TV show with Apple TV+. Plus. As much as Peter Jackson, Fran Walsh, and Weta needed New Line Cinema, New Line needed them. Mm-hmm. It's also possible that Bob Shea wanted to prove to Hollywood that Harvey Weinstein sucked and Bob Shea could eat his <laughs> lunch. Uh, they Good had a bit him. of a rivalry, <laughs> New Line and Miramax both being kind of mini-major studios. But New Line's investment was hefty up front. Lizzie, in order to pay back Harvey Weinstein, for his development costs, $12 million. They had to then pony up $3 million to secure the rights. Plus, they had to pay an additional $10 million to keep Jackson and Walsh writing the scripts and pre-production running in New Zealand. So basically, New Line shelled out $20 to $25 million right off the top just to keep the project running. I mean, in retrospect, it sounds like a freaking bargain buy because this is like such a lasting franchise that has now, you know, inspired two going on three spinoff franchises. So like, sure. Yeah. At the time, people thought this was insane, though. I mean, that's that's very true. Uh, In fact, 
Hollywood collectively thought that Bob Shea had lost his goddamn mind. Uh, this was another <laughs> Titanic situation. Word spread quickly that New Line Cinema was investing upwards of $200 million. It would, of course, end up being more than that. In an adaptation of an unadaptable trilogy to be written and directed by the guy who made The Frighteners, which had, as we said, flopped in the summer of 1996. But again... That's $200 million for three movies. But at the time, movies weren't typically more than about $100 million. So that wasn't as big a discount as it is in the Marvel age. Still a Costco discount. Fair enough. If the first film failed, as Peter Jackson put it, the sequels would be the two most expensive direct-to-DVD films ever made. Mm-hmm. That would have been so sad and so funny if that had <laughs> happened. Uh, so, while now under the scrutiny of Hollywood and the pressures of an entire studio depending on the success of the films, Jackson and Walsh had the opportunity to bring back in much of what they'd had to cut out when they had cut the books down to a two-script. Oh, Harvey and Bob Weinstein's incredibly stupid notes? Great, yeah. Cut Saruman. God damn it. Yeah, they didn't have to kill a hobbit as Bob had wanted them. Oh, good. Anyone, pick one. (laughs) Yeah, so Philippa Boyens at this point was brought in as a true third collaborator, like a true third screenwriter, and they got to work translating their existing structure into a three-film format. So the first thing that was restored, Lizzie... Boyens brought back Lothlorien to the Fellowship of the Ring. Thank you. They had working drafts by November of 1998, although these drafts were quite different than the finished films. Perhaps the biggest departure, as we'll discuss later, is Arwen's role. We talked Mm -hmm. about this a little bit in the first episode. In this version, she actually follows the Fellowship to Lothlorien, then Edoras, and a love triangle is established between her, Eowyn, and Aragorn that plays out kind of in real time. Which you see remnants of in this, which doesn't totally make sense without her yeah. being more present. But, uh, like, it's fine. Whatever. As we'll later see, they actually shot her at Helm's Deep. They filmed that her at sense. Helm's Deep, but she was yeah. not included. Point being, the trio wrote relentlessly. They edited and tweaked the script, cutting and adding things back in. In fact, they continued to write all the way through production and post-production until the film was finally locked. This was the giant work-in-progress script of the 21st century, 20th and 21st century. Exposition was, of course, always the tricky area of the story. Mm-hmm. This is where Boyens really shined. She nailed the prologue, Lizzie, yep. as we discussed. She gets a lot of information across very quickly. However, the first movie ground to a halt during the Council of Elrond scene in Rivendell. Apparently, the script read really well, and you hit the Council of Rivendell, the Council of Elrond, and it was like 45 pages of, and this is the history of the dwarves, and this is the history oh, of the elves, no. and it just slowed <laughs> down. Uh, apparently, that log jam was unworked when they got to set and realized, oh, you don't have to explain the history of the dwarves. No. You just need John Rhys Davies to turn up and be a dwarf. And the yes. audience is going to get it. <laughs> yeah, he's so good. During the production, the trio would learn to trust the actors and their instincts with the characters. For example, Boromir had this very long extended speech about Mordor. Actually, parts of it are in the extended cut and you don't need it because the speech <laughs> is actually summed up beautifully with that performance of one line. Mm-hmm. One does not simply walk into Mordor. And thus so many memes were born. Yes. So many memes. And that line actually was written out on a piece of paper that had been balanced on his knee. And you can see him 
kind of glance down in the middle of it, mm-hmm. and he's actually checking his line there. Uh, the actors also got a decent amount of input. Sean Astin was the one that insisted that Sam would actually be eavesdropping on the council, and so that Aww. was worked into the script. And Boyens is very proud of some of the comic relief that she got into the script, including Pippin's line that ends that scene. So, <laughs> where are we going uh, at the end <laughs> yes. of that scene? Which is very fun. He's so great. He's really good. Billy Boyd is great. Uh, as the screenwriting progressed, which was really a process powered by Fran Walsh, apparently she was the driving force of the script. And that's Jackson Peter Jackson's partner as well, right? Partner, exactly. Okay. Both romantic partner and producing partner. Right. Who They had done everything together at following Peter Jackson's first film, Bad Taste. So Jackson, knowing that the script was in good hands with Walsh and Boyens, he started working on storyboarding and pre-visualizing the movie. And he brought on this really talented young artist named Christian Rivers. Christian Rivers was from New Zealand, and he had approached Jackson after he had seen Brain Dead. Christian Rivers was 17 years old, saw Jackson's second film, was like, I just want to be your protege. And Jackson said, great, you're now my storyboard artist. And he storyboarded all of his movies through Lord of the Rings. And actually, Peter Jackson produced... Christian Rivers' directorial debut, 2018's The Mortal Engines, uh, years later, starring Hugo Weaving. Yeah, so they had a really wonderful relationship, and Jackson eventually helped him become a director himself, which I thought was really cool. I'll say, because that was a pretty big directorial debut. Very, very big budget movie. We'll probably cover at some point. Um, Yeah. Now, today, previs is largely done virtually. You put the camera in a virtual environment, you place your actors around that environment, and then you move your camera and figure out how you want to move it on set. Back in 1998 and 99, Peter Jackson, for the most part, actually used miniatures to do his pre-visualization. So they would make, think, you know, something not dissimilar from Warhammer, like a tabletop game. They would make these miniature sets and he would move little pieces around and uh, thimble for the camera. And there were two exceptions, two important exceptions. The first was the cave troll scene in Moria, which Mm -hmm. they actually did a virtual digital pre-visualization, one of the first that had ever been done, where Jackson actually held a fake like virtual camera with sensors on it, and he moved it through an empty space in order to see where the cave troll would be. And then later, the Mumikil scene, the giant elephants in Return of the King. So they did have two digital sequences. So the script's underway. The studio has funded Weta. And Peter Jackson now finds himself facing a very big problem. Which is, where in God's name am I going to find hobbits? Lizzie? Any actor in Hollywood. They're all so small. They are very small. So he had decided (laughs) early in the process that he was going to use normally proportioned humans scaled down through forced perspective and other digital trickery. Oh, yes. I'm sorry. I just came across as a real asshole because there were other possibilities there which were not just normal-sized humans. Cancel her. So he was going to use normally proportioned humans scaled down through forced perspective and digital trickery for the hobbits. So he was intent on finding four shorter actors who were British specifically. Also, to be fair, that does make sense, just given the sort of way that they're described um, in the books and everything. Like, they are they yeah. are proportionate. And they had toyed with ideas of, like, could we use puppets in some sequences? And really, it felt like we needed to use real people on set, yeah. and we need to use whatever tools are at our disposal, practical and digital, in order to accomplish that. Jackson already had Ian Holm in mind for Bilbo. He'd wanted him for that part for a while. So he did, in a sense, have a template that he was working off of when he was looking for his Mary Pippin, Sam, and Frodo. So in the summer of 1998, 
A worldwide search starts to figure out who these four hobbits are going to be. Lizzie, any guesses of the four, which was the first to be cast? Sean Astin. No. Billy Boyd. Dominic. Oh, okay. <laughs> Where'd they find him? So he was the, he was actually the oldest of all of the actors, even though he was playing the youngest of all of the hobbits. He was 31, oh, wow. oldest of the four, uh, 13 years older than Elijah Wood, but what? he was playing the youngest, yeah, of the characters. So he's born in Glasgow. And he ended up, after a number of different uh, kind of false starts in his career, at the Royal Scottish Academy of Music and Drama before booking a series of TV roles and indie film parts. And what Jackson and, and everybody really loved about Boyd so much was his voice. They loved his voice. They loved his accent. And they actually loved his singing voice. He really sings wonderfully. Beautiful. He actually co-wrote, along with Philippa Boyens and Howard Shore, The Steward of Gondor, the song he sings to Denethor. Really? As Faramir rides out to certain death. Yeah. That's crazy. That's beautiful. It's beautiful. So they found their Mary next in Dominic Monaghan. Monaghan actually read for Frodo. He had never read for Mary, but Jackson thought he would play so well opposite Billy Boyd that he offered him the part. And true to the books, their dynamic on screen really is reflective of their dynamic in real life. They became fast friends when they met on set. And Lizzie, they, as you mentioned, have a podcast together now, The Friendship Onion. They do. It's very cute. It's very sweet. Yes. I love them both. Also, God bless Billy Boyd. He's like the only one that doesn't have sort of another iconic role outside of That's Lord true. of the Rings. All three of the other hobbits do. Yeah, my, obviously Sean Astin and Elijah Wood were both child actors. And then uh, Monaghan went on to Lost after yes. that uh, as Charlie. And he's so good in Lost, yeah. So Sam and Frodo were not so easy to find. You mentioned Sean Astin, Lizzie. So in the summer of 1998, Sean Astin was experiencing a professional slump. He is the son of actress Patty Duke, which mm -hmm. I had forgotten, and the stepson of actor John Astin, who had actually played a ghost in Peter Jackson's The Frighteners, which oh, wow. I didn't know. Yeah, so Sean Astin actually met Peter Jackson at the premiere of The Frighteners before Lord of the Rings was ever going to happen. Uh, I can't believe he's younger than Billy Boyd. He is. So he was the second oldest of the three. Now, he, even though he's younger, he was at that point when they started filming, he was married and had had a daughter already. So he was... Well, he'd been working forever. He, he had been working forever. So he was first on screen in uh, when he was nine years old. He act, acted opposite his own mother, his real mom, Patty Duke, in a movie that was called Please Don't Hit Me, Mother. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, about no. <laughs> you guessed it, an abusive mother. Oh. Uh, he was he was nine years old, as I mentioned, but he really broke out uh, at around age twelve or thirteen with the Goonies, yes. and uh, obviously incredible film. I love that movie. Uh, and then he found kind of not quite leading roles, but good roles in Memphis Belle, Toy Soldiers, and Courage Under Fire. And of course, mm -hmm. there was the exception, Rudy, as you yes. mentioned. And Rudy was. A big success for in Aston's career, and it's obviously a beloved sports film. Uh, mm -hmm. He plays a young man who wants to play on the Notre Dame football team and accomplishes it eventually despite a lot of obstacles. However, the movie was not a big commercial hit. And oh, so interesting. he had actually, as I mentioned, he married young. He had a daughter to raise. He also wanted to be a director. He directed a short film in 1994 that was uh, nominated for an Academy Award called Kangaroo Court. Wow. 
So on a Tuesday that summer, Aston, who apparently wasn't getting a lot of calls from his agent at that point, gets a call from his agent, and she just says, listen, Pete Jackson is doing Lord of the Rings for a new line. You're reading for Sam. You need a flawless British accent by Thursday. And then she hung up. And so he had (laughs) two days (laughs) to learn how to do a British accent for a book that he had never read before. And so he rushed to a bookstore, bought the books. He said he got through about 100 pages, and then he had to stop. you can't. He got five pages of description and dialogue from the casting director, and he decided to lean into the part of the character that seemed to match what worked so well for his performance in Rudy, which is this idea that Sam is the blue-collar character of the group. He's Frodo's gardener. He is the lower-class man. He's Mm -hmm. the everyman. In many ways, he's what Tolkien believed was kind of the every infantryman in World War I. And that's very much who Sam was supposed to represent. So he, for an accent, decided he would model one of his favorite actors, Michael Caine. And so that's Aww. how he got like his Cockney accent. And he recorded it on tape and sent it out on into the abyss. Uh, then he was rereading the pages and it said that Sam was heavier than the other hobbits, like a thicker hobbit. Yeah. And Aston had actually gotten into really good shape that summer because he had run the LA Marathon that year. And so oh, wow. he was like 30 pounds lighter than he normally was. So he was like, oh, shit, shit, shit. So he put together a <laughs> tape of all the roles where he was heavier. And then he sent oh. that in too. And he was like, just so you know, I can, be, I can be heavier if needed for this role. Oh, God. I mean, this just makes me think of like how exhausting this process is for actors. Oh. Like even when they are as successful as Sean Astin was at that point and exactly. ha- had famous parents, like that's a nightmare to have yeah. to be like, I can be whatever weight you want yeah. me to be. I can do whatever. It's like, oh my God. It's it's really tough. Um, now, meanwhile, Elijah Wood was was very much a young star on the rise. He had been filming Robert Rodriguez's The Faculty that summer, which (laughs) I just, I love that movie so much. It's not technically good, but we do love it. It's not, it's, sure, (laughs) good is relative. Um, When he was on set, a young man who was kind of like a pioneering internet writer named Harry Knowles came to visit set and became friends with Elijah Wood. Harry Knowles had helped start and was running the website Ain't It Cool News, which at the time, Ain't It Mm. Cool News was like a real big, it was like the BuzzFeed, you know, of 1998. Well, it just so happens that Peter Jackson had done an interview with Harry Knowles as a way to get ahead of fan whiplash, like backlash on the movies. So Peter Jackson did did this interview where they solicited fan questions to the website and Peter Jackson answered the fan questions. And he did that with Harry Knowles so that Ain't It Cool News became this really big supporter of the film to counter a lot of the negativity that they were getting in the Hollywood trades about how New Line had lost their minds, blah, 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 blah. Ain't It Cool News was saying like, no, 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 this is awesome. These movies are going to rock. So Knowles is hanging out with Wood uh, and he goes... Yo, Peter Jackson's doing an adaptation of Lord of the Rings. You should play Frodo. And Elijah Wood's like, oh, maybe. Wood had loved Jackson's early work, uh, Braindead, Heavenly Creatures, and he was a big fan of The Hobbit. So he calls his agent. His agent gets him a draft of the script, and they ask that he just, like Sean Astin and the other actors, record one of the scenes on tape and send it in. But 
Turns out he's a lot like Peter Jackson and he's not going to lead it to chance. So he recruits two of his friends. He puts together his best Frodo costume. He goes to Griffith Park and he shoots three scenes (laughs) as Frodo as if it's a movie. Uh, Each one showing kind of a progression of the ring's effects on him as he's carrying it closer and closer to Mount Doom. Now, meanwhile, across the world, Peter Jackson's completely losing hope that they're ever going to find a Frodo or a Sam. He had personally auditioned over 200 actors across the world at this point, trying to find the right fit. And one day he gets it. Who else was up for it at all? We do know one very specific person that's about to come up. And for, like I said, you know, some of the other hobbits did audition for Frodo Mm -hmm. originally. So he gets a tape, and the guy delivering the tape just says, "Uh, it's the kid from Flipper. (laughs) Yes. <laughs> and so Elijah Wood has been in Flipper in 1996. And The and Good like, Son. Yeah, and The Good Son, obviously, with Macaulay Culkin. And Jackson's like, it's an American. There's no way. And then he puts the tape in, and apparently those baby blue eyes yeah. are what see the, sealed the deal. He just fell into those eyes and was like, just oh, my God. huge, unblinking blue eyes. <laughs> yeah, blue he, eyes. I don't know that he blinks in the entire trilogy. <laughs> he also said that what he loved is that when Elijah Wood would smile, it seemed innocent, but if he held the smile too long or extended it a little bit, he looked like an evil child. And he yes. was like, I could totally see him succumbing to the ring. This is exactly what we need. However, it wasn't a done deal. Elijah Wood would have to meet with Peter Jackson. And in the meantime, Peter Jackson was auditioning another young up-and-coming actor, Jake Gyllenhaal. Oh, hmm. Lizzie, let me ask you something. You've got a moderately successful podcast that requires you to watch a boatload of movies, right? Yep. Okay, so how do you find time to cook healthy, affordable meals? I don't. I've been eating delicious, ready-to-eat meals from Factor. They're chef-crafted, dietitian approved and delivered right to my door. Okay, but do they have snacks and smoothies, the only two things that my daughter currently eats? Uh, they sure do. There are over 35 different options every week to choose from, including keto, calorie-smart, veggie, and vegan for you and your vegan child. And the best part is, when you sign up, you save money because Factor is less expensive than takeout. The napkin math checks out. I actually did it. Factor gets you a two-minute, restaurant-quality meal on the table with no prep and no mess. Until my daughter throws it on my face. It's flexible for any schedule. Choose between 6 to 18 meals per week, and you can pause or reschedule anytime. So head to factormeals.com slash www50 and use code www50 to get 50% off. www50 at factormeals.com slash www50 to get 50% off. This episode is brought to you in part by Noom. Forget one-size-fits-all diets. With Noom, you get a personalized weight loss plan that's tailored to your lifestyle. No food is off limits. Enjoy your favorites while discovering healthier habits. Noom's users love the flexible approach, blending psychology and biology to help you lose weight in a way that's sustainable for you. And great news for foodies. Noom just released the Noom Kitchen Cookbook with 100 delicious healthy recipes. Stay focused on what's important to you with Noom's psychology and biology-based approach. Sign up for your trial today at Noom.com. That's N-O-O-M dot com. Grab your copy of The Noom Kitchen wherever books are sold. So Gyllenhaal came into audition, Lizzie, and his agent didn't tell him about the British accent. What? So he auditioned with a California accent. Oh, no. And it did not go well. And apparently Peter Jackson told him at the end of his, uh, when he revealed he didn't know about the accent, Peter Jackson was like, honestly, you should fire your agent. I don't know if he did at this point. So Gyllenhaal did not get the role. 
I mean, I'm glad. I, I don't think he's right for it between the two of them. And he was perfect for Donnie Darko. And, yes. you know, I think the world got the two best versions of those movies that we could have gotten. So on July 8th, 1999, New Line Cinema announced that Frodo Baggins was going to be played by Elijah Wood. Mm-hmm. He was 18 years old and he was about to spend the next two years of his life on set filming The Lord of the Rings half a world away. I had no idea he's 18. He's 18. His college would be... Lord of the Rings, which is just absolutely remarkable. New Line, meanwhile, had called Sean Astin to inform him that he had secured the role of Sam. Hell yeah. His agent, though, warned him that the pay was very, very low, especially for an actor with as many credits as he had. For three films and two years of work, he would only be paid a flat rate of $250,000. What? Orlando Bloom as we'll get to, was paid even less, $175,000. Oh, my God. Most of the non-top-billed actors on these movies were paid very little, which is how they were able to afford such an incredible amount of world-building in these movies. Even so, Sean Astin accepted the role, and after he hung up, he fell to the floor and he cried because he knew that this was going to change his life. Yeah. So The Hobbits arrived in New Zealand at the end of August 1999, just as winter was ending for those crazy Southern Hemisphere New Zealanders. (laughs) They went through two months of training, costume fitting. They each had to learn specific accents and swordplay. They had to obviously do their wig fittings, full head moldings, and foot moldings for their Hobbit feet. This is so fun. (laughs) Uh, It was relentless, and apparently they really did become... Like a, a unit, just like you would best have to. friends. Yeah. Aston's daughter, Alexandra, would soon have three new uncles for the rest of her life. And in fact, Aww. little Alexandra Aston would become part of the Rings universe when she would take the role of Eleanor Gamgee in The Return of the King. She plays Aww. Sam's daughter in the third film, which I think is so, so cool. cute. Quick sidebar. Wood and Aston obviously had to learn their accents. Monaghan's mm-hmm. accent was tweaked for the film, and everybody loved Billy Boyd's voice so much they said, don't change a thing. <laughs> I was going to say, it. it doesn't make any sense. Like, he has no. a totally different it's accent totally than different. the rest of them. Uh, it's it, like, great. it's fine. No one cares, baggins? but, yeah. Frodo Baggins. <laughs> yeah. Sure know the Baggins. It's I mean, so... he's clearly from Scotland. Like, I love no him. Question. It's great. It's perfect. You don't change a beat. So the next two cast members to join were the apparently absolutely love... I've heard he is absolutely lovely Orlando Bloom, set to play Legolas. My love when I was 12. (laughs) Well, and what's interesting is he originally auditioned for Faramir. And part of the reason is his natural complexion is not elf-like at all. He's actually very tan, and he has very dark features, and he has dark hair and eyebrows and everything. I know, Chris, because let me tell you how disappointed I was (laughs) when when I learned He's very beautiful. He did not look like Legolas. I know, I can't explain it. I saw what he looks like in real life. I I think he's more handsome, not as an elf. I saw him as a non-elf, and I was like, oh my God, he's hotter. As an adult, I'm aware that he is technically significantly hotter, not as an elf. But at 12 years old, I was like, it's not going to work for me outside of the Legolas Well, apparently it was like Philippa Boyens and Fran Walsh were like, we need Legolas. We need young girls to love Legolas. Like, that's the only way they're going to see the movie. And then they were like, like, none of these guys are hot enough to play him. And they finally came across Orlando Bloom, and they're like, 
What if we put blonde around him? Apparently his wig took forever and it cost $15,000. It looks good. They could not get it right. You know I complain about wigs all the time on this. Yeah. His wig looks good. There's some his other ones in this great. that don't look as good. Some of the hot ones is... don't hold up as well, but his looks it's, amazing. Uh, what's Aowen's brother's name? Carl Urban? Uh, Aomer. Yeah, not as... The hairline not on that one is questionable. Yeah. Yes. Uh, okay, so the next cast member to show up is the man to play Aragorn, and that is, of course, Stuart Townsend. Uh, <laughs> yes, <laughs> I do know this. <laughs> yeah, not 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 O. Uh, Mortensen. We will get back to Stuart Townsend in a moment. Uh, the problem, from New Line's perspective, about all of this great casting is that while Sean Astin and Elijah Wood uh, were all great for their roles, none of these folks were box office draws, despite being wonderful for their parts. And so they were looking for a name to offset their investment. They were specifically looking for one name, Sean Connery. Uh, that's right. No. The man as with Gandalf? The, as Gandalf, the man with the golden <laughs> no. gun. New Line said Connery needed to play Gandalf to get the green light. Quick sidebar, oh, no. they apparently also soft-pitched Brad Pitt as Aragorn, but that didn't go anywhere. Uh, which uh, is, I'm I, fine with that. Yeah, I'm fine with that, too. He's a smoke show also. Uh, Jackson apparently was not that opposed to Connery. He just didn't think he would fit in the world exactly. No. He worried that he would break the reality. He also just didn't think Sean Connery would want to spend 18 months in New Zealand shooting what was effectively an independent film with no. Peter Jackson. Also, who's he going to slap? There's nobody there for him to slap. (laughs) Line him up. Uh, (laughs) Bob Shea insisted that they were offering Mr. Connery the deal of a lifetime. So Peter Jackson relented, and New Line sent the scripts to the Bahamas, where Sean Connery was vacationing. Now, here was the offer that New Line gave him. Six to ten million dollars per film up front. Oh my God. That was actually pretty low for him at the time. But he would get... 15% of the film's gross on the back end. (sighs) For Sean Connery, it's so wrong. Like, I I, listen, Sean Connery's great. He's an you know, he's an icon, he's fine. Uh, he's an icon, he's fine. (laughs) This is dumb. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, well, part of the issue too is they needed to really entice him because they were getting very close to shooting and they needed to shoot a lot of the Gandalf scenes first, and so. They needed him to say yes and say yes quickly. So they sent him the scripts and they wait and they wait. And he literally never replied. No, because I guarantee you he read them and he was like, I don't get it. That's what (laughs) he said. That's literally what he said. So there you go. Could have told you that. Saved you a lot of time. (laughs) At Cannes a few years later, he said, I read the books. I read the scripts. I even saw the first movie. I don't understand. (laughs) He left it alone. Had he taken the role, he would have made over $450 million on these movies, which is mind boggling. Let me guess. They did not offer Ian McKellen that deal. Uh, no. They, I'm sure he did quite well, but he didn't get that deal. So while New Line is quartering Connery, Philip Boyens was planting a very different voyage, uh, version of Gandalf in both Jackson and Walsh's minds, and that's the English actor Ian McKellen. Mm-hmm. Now, he's perfect, but he was not an obvious choice at the time. He had almost no name recognition compared to someone like Sean Connery or Anthony Hopkins, who they had apparently also really considered for well, this that role. makes more sense. Yes. Right. So McKellen, born in 1939, he'd largely been a theater actor and hadn't found success in the film world until his 50s. But I want to point out, he was one of the most renowned and well-known, particularly Shakespeare actors in the entire world. Of and course. like, he was a known quantity. Like, I remember when I went to go see this, my mom was like, that's Sir 
Mr. Ian McKellen, and we watched Macbeth. We were like, like he you was... lived in an unusual household. <laughs> like okay, he, he absolutely, and he had started to get known on screen in the nineties. Six Degrees of so- Separation, Last Action mm-hmm. Hero, nineteen ninety eight. Gods an and ap- Monsters, apt ap- ap- pupil, and then of course Gods and Monsters, uh, which was uh, where he starred opposite Brendan Fraser, uh, and that movie really got him the attention that he deserved. So Jackson and Walsh fly to England to meet with McKellen because Connery's not responding. McKellen reads the scripts. And by the way, McKellen sounds like the coolest person in the world. Yes. Just awesome. He was also uh, an openly gay man at this point, um, working in, uh, obviously on stage and in Hollywood. He reads the scripts. He really likes Jackson and Walsh. And candidly, he was like, I think the scripts are fine. I don't fully understand them, but I really like these two quirky people from New Zealand. And he politely has to turn them down because he's supposed to play Magneto in X-Men. Yes, which he does. And he's so and good. And he's also he's great. He's so yes. good. Uh, this would not be a problem if X-Men were on schedule. But X-Men was not on schedule because the man that they had hired to play Wolverine, not Hugh Jackman, Gray Scott, was busy oh. playing the villain on Mission Impossible 2. And this would not be a problem if Mission Impossible 2 was not delayed. But Mission Impossible 2 was delayed because Tom Cruise was still stuck on the set of Eyes Wide Shut, which Stanley Kubrick Uh. had been shooting for like 400 days. (laughs) So (laughs) literally they have like a pileup of five movies happening at the same time. So they go back to the drawing board. They talked about Richard Harris, Tom Wilkinson, Christopher Plummer, Sam Neill, uh, even Ooh. Bernard Hill, who ended up playing Theoden, but no one really felt right. So Bob Shea says, fuck it. And he steps up to the plate. And so first he tells Pete, he goes, I need you to delay Gandalf's scenes until the beginning of the new year. So they're going to start principal photography in the fall of 1999. Mm-hmm. He's like, don't shoot Gandalf until January 2000. So Peter Jackson and his team are like trying to rebuild a 275 day schedule on the go right now. Then John Woo gives them an unexpected assist. Mission Impossible 2 gets delayed even longer. And so nothing they can do with X-Men except let go of Dugray Scott, which boosts Hugh Jackman into the role of Wolverine, which would become the role of a lifetime. And then that would in turn get X-Men moving, which would free up Ian McKellen by January of 2000. Man, that is so crazy because, like, this just shows you how much chance goes into oh, this stuff. It's all because DeGray Scott's career, yeah. like, didn't go that much farther. I mean, I remember him from Ever After. Like, he, he was, was poised to be something big. He was great. Yeah. And yeah, that's, ah, I mean, I love Hugh Jackman, but. Yeah, I love Hugh Jackman. They're all great. I love all these people. Uh, I yeah. hope they all. Get great roles as Wolverine, everyone. Everyone's Wolverine. So unfortunately, (laughs) Fox uh, isn't going to put anything in writing that would bind McKellen to another shoot. So all Peter Jackson gets is a handshake deal from Brian Singer saying, I'll have McKellen wrapped in time for you to start shooting him in January. That's not a hand you want to shake. Yeah, so... So they are literally banking on a 275-day production on a guarantee from the guy that got canned off of Bohemian Rhapsody for not showing up set. Uh, So rounding out the cast, 
were the great Christopher Lee as Saruman. Uh, mm-hmm. Lee was obviously a veteran actor who'd played Dracula in the famous yeah. Hammer Monster films. And he was actually the cast Lord of the Rings expert. He had read the books as a young man, and then he read them once a year, just like Philip Boyens, every year Aww. until this point in time. And he also just was the storyteller and bullshitter of the production. And he had actually met J.R.R. Tolkien in a pub when Lee was a younger man. And this was a story that he would tell over and over again. He also <laughs> would critique anything that they got wrong about any of the characters. Uh, Good. I'm glad he was having fun. You can gr- tell. It's, also. No, you can tell. He had a great time. Uh, he yes. also apparently really wanted to play Gandalf, but by the time... No, the you're f- too evil, he's, sir. Well, he was also too old. So <laughs> McKellen had just turned 60 when the filming began. Lee was already 77. And the role... I was of, wondering about that because Ian McKellen, like, they must have put quite a bit of old age makeup on him. And the wig and yeah. the hair and everything. Um, yeah. And, and McKellen's always looked older than he is. He's had kind of a heaviness to his eyes and stuff. Like, uh, there's a mm-hmm. weariness to him that I think translates really well. Anyhow, it made more sense to have the older of the two play Saruman. Jackson apparently also considered Tim Curry, Jeremy Irons, Malcolm McDowell for Saruman, but Christopher Lee was always his top choice. Those are all good. Ooh, I'm not going to lie. Jeremy Irons is Saruman. He's really fun. I would love that. The production actually reached out to David Bowie to play uh, Lord Elrond, but he... Past, but that would have been uh, that would have been incredible and kind of wild. The Star Child. He was busy um, with a cameo in Zoolander. Yeah, so Australian actor Hugo Weaving, who had just stolen every scene uh, mm-hmm. in the Wachowski sisters' The Matrix as Agent Smith, was brought in, yeah, and if, I think that was also a New Line production. So I'm guessing he maybe got connected through New Line to them. He's great. Boromir, who is my favorite character from The Fellowship, um, was initially offered to Russell Crowe. Oh, that makes sense. Which would have been interesting. Uh, but Mr. Yeah. Crow had just wrapped Gladiator. And yeah, he was like, he's tired. I, he was beat to shit. Listen to our episode on yeah. it. So he turned them down. They also then auditioned the unknown Daniel Craig, unknown at the time. He would go wow. on to be James Bond. And apparently, that would have been good too. Yeah. And apparently, Bruce Willis really wanted the part. He was a big fan of the book. No. Uh, but Jackson <laughs> said, uh, no. Uh, apparently, also yeah. one of uh, J.R.R. Tolkien's grandsons, Simon Tolkien, who was a barrister, a British attorney, was like, I would like to audition for Boromir, and they let him. Aww. And he was just thrilled to audition, apparently. And Jackson said he was very Aww. nice, but it wasn't the part for him. That's great. So Boromir, obviously, is eventually played by the wonderful Sean Bean. Sean Bean, mm-hmm. of course, it, I, I love Sean Bean. He has the looks of a leading man, yet he'd fallen into playing a series of villains in the 90s, mm-hmm. including 006 or Janice in Goldeneye, the IRA terror. Patriot Games. Sean Miller and Jack Ryan's Patriot Games. He was an enormous fan of the books, and he had actually actively pursued a role in the production for over a year. And apparently he was in consideration early on for Aragorn, but did not win the part. And I think he would have been actually been a really good Aragorn. Yeah, um, 100%. I love Sean Bean. I mean, you see a lot of Aragorn in Ned Stark, I think. Um, absolutely. Later. Yeah. But he's just so perfect as Boromir. He's, he's so, so good. good. He's so good. So Gimli cho- proved to be a real challenge. Uh, British comedian Billy Connolly auditioned and was apparently mm. in high consideration. Uh, if you don't know Billy Con- Connolly, have you seen, uh, this is not one of his most famous roles, but like The Last Samurai He's like the wise 
cracking. Yeah, never mind. Billy Connolly, look up his credits. Uh, but John Reese Davies stole the show because of his voice, uh, which is just yes. absolutely amazing. Even though he's six foot two, mm-hmm. he actually was like pretty apathetic about taking the role. He later said, It occurs to you, where's the mileage in playing a dwarf with prosthetic makeup? Certainly the money wasn't attractive. <laughs> and so, uh, <laughs> as we'll learn, the makeup proved to be a sticking point for Mr. Davies. Well, he's wearing a lot of it. Well, it's really, really important to note. While he performed Gimli's dialogue and close-ups, it was actually stunt double and actor Brett Beattie who played the grumpy yet heroic dwarf in anything wider than a medium shot. In fact, yeah. Davies famously spent less time with the main cast than Brett Beattie did. Um, and so Davies actually described the movie as being very lonely, and Beattie was more of a part of the fellowship than Davies was when they were on set. He sent Beatty to get the cast tattoo instead of him, right? Because he like hadn't even been a part of it. When they did the cast tattoo, they invite uh, Davies turned them down, and then the rest of the cast invited Beatty to come with them instead to do it. Wow. A couple other casting things to just crank through. Uma Thurman was offered the role of Eowyn. Uh, Ooh. New Line was hopeful that her then husband Ethan Hawke would play Faramir. And that would have been great. Such a cool one-two punch. Apparently, Hawk wanted to do it. He was a big fan of the books, but Thurman had just given birth to their first child, actress Maya Hawk, who you Maya might know Hawk. from Stranger Things. So she passed on the role. And much of her decision was based on the fact that Eowyn's role seemed to be changing in scope relative to Arwen. And she couldn't tell if it was like a main part or a really small part. And she later said that I do consider it one of the worst decisions I have ever made. Uma. Uh, I would have loved to have seen that. I love Uma Thurman so much. And that makes sense. And I mean, you can kind of tell something was going on, but also, of course, at the end of the day, Eowyn ends up being a a significantly bigger part than Arwen in a lot of ways. Yeah. And obviously, Eowyn ends up being played by Australian actress Miranda Otto and Faramir by Australian actor David Wenham. So Arwen was the last of the major roles to be cast. They had met with Ashley Judd and Helena Bonham Carter, but it was ultimately Liv Tyler, the model-turned-actress and daughter of rock and roll superstar Steve Tyler, who would play the Beguiling Elf. Jackson presented her to New Line, and New Line was like, thank God, finally, someone that someone will recognize in this movie. (laughs) Specifically, Liv Tyler was huge in Japan. No joke. Okay. Uh, So she had played the major love interest in Michael Bay's Armageddon, which had been Mm -hmm. box office dynamite in Japan. Specifically, like, they loved Liv Tyler in Japan. Lord of the Rings would end up making over $100 million in Japan alone. And when they did their marketing rollout there, they used posters that featured Tyler. Liv Tyler. It was like, Liv Tyler takes the ring to Mordor. Great. Yes. (laughs) She's in it for 20 minutes tops. Yeah. So, of course, Aragorn was both Jackson's biggest failure in the casting process and, in the end, his greatest triumph. Yes. Part of the issue was that Jackson, Boyens, and Walsh were having trouble figuring out Aragorn as a character themselves. He's very much a cipher. He's the reluctant hero, the Mm would-be king. He doesn't have much interiority in the books. And then there was the issue of his age. And... It's unclear, right? Yeah. So technically, he is of Numenor. That's the lineage. And they were blessed by the Valar with long lives after they helped defeat Morgoth. What does that mean? According to Lord of the Rings experts, he was actually 87 years old during the events of the first film. He obviously doesn't look 87 years old. But that's because they live to be like 300 years old. Also, they're supposed to be super tall, I'm pretty sure. Yeah. The men of Numenor are like huge. They are. Vin Diesel sent in a tape to be considered. 
And Nicolas Cage claims he turned down the role, although Peter Jackson says, no, we offered him Boromir, and he did turn down Boromir, apparently. Peter, uh, Patrick Stewart also asked to meet with the filmmakers about the project. They assumed for Theoden, but Stewart was actually interested in Aragorn, which led to a very awkward meeting when he was like, (laughs) no, I want to play Aragorn. Uh, And they all had to say, like, we're sorry, we don't think it will work. But you can imagine he's like, he says he's 87 in the books. He was only in his late 50s at the time. So I can see where he thought. And he was a very athletic man. So in the end, he had championed Stuart Townsend, an obscure 27-year-old Irish actor. He was very handsome, but far younger than expected. Newline is very confused by this choice, but Jackson's like, no, this is our guy. He flies Townsend to New Zealand. They do a full screen test, 35 millimeter. They shoot three scenes, full costume, full lighting. Apparently, those would be the only scenes he would ever film for the trilogy. Oh, buddy. And we will get to that as we get into production. So, these films are a masterclass in organization, delegation, and the division of labor. And where that labor came from was a problem all on its own, Lizzie. There's only 3.85 million people in New Zealand at this time. That is the population of Los Angeles in the entire country. So as pre-production gets underway, Richard Taylor, who runs Weta, uh, the Weta workshop side, realizes we need a whole lot more people. So he creates an armor division, a weapons division, a prosthetic makeup division, a creatures division, and a miniatures division. And then he starts going around and he's like, I need all my local artists, all my craftspeople. Doesn't matter if you've worked in film production or not. And then he starts flying internationally and he puts up flyers. He goes to LA, sick of living in Los Angeles. That's what the flyer said. <laughs> and it said, major movie <laughs> happening in New Zealand. He couldn't put Lord of the Rings on it. So he just had to say major movie in New Zealand. So they start flying people who are curious from all over the world down to New Zealand. And they make this incredible team of people, some of whom have worked on movies, some who haven't. For example, they're like, we need a blacksmith's forge and we need to make armor that looks like it would have been made in Middle Earth, not 1990s New Zealand. So they find this guy, Pete Lyon, who's from the Southern Island of New Zealand and they bring him over and he's like, oh yeah, I make my armor in the way that they made it in the 15th century. And it turns out he'd been making armor for collectors and medieval reenactors for the last few years. And so they just started like, building full sets of armor and full swords on this like back lot that they'd made in Wellington out of a bunch of old buildings. Every weapon was made multiple times. There was the hero version. There were five less detailed aluminum versions and then rubber versions for stunts. Famously, Viggo Mortensen would only use the hero version. He just refused to hold any other version of his sword when he was acting. Uh, Richard Taylor and his team, they made 48,000 props, 10,000 facial appliances to do all of the different orcs, 2,000 pairs of hobbit feet. Every orc and urukai was specifically designed, complete with backstories to explain wounds and variations, including one very special orc that was designed to look like Harvey Weinstein. You will know who we mean if you watch the movies. These orc and urukai designs were not done digitally. They would be created first on paper, then they sculpted them in exquisite detail up to five feet tall, They would do this for the Watcher in the Water, the Balrog, the Fell Beast. And then when they needed to get them into the computer for CGI, they actually had to scan them. But the sculptures were too big for their scanner. So then they realized, okay, we got to get a bigger scanner. So they realized that the New Zealand meat industry had a digital handheld scanner that they would scan giant slabs of meat with to get their rough weights. And they could use that to scan the sculptures in for Weta Digital. And they used that to scan the Cave Troll, for example. (laughs) They also obviously had a miniatures division. This movie has so many amazing miniature shots. They built 68 miniatures. They called them bigatures because some of them were the size of a small house. Uh, Jackson obviously didn't want this simple 
lock off the camera, matte painting, miniature, establishing shot. He wanted swooping shots. He wanted to get as close to the Towers of Gondor as possible. The models had to be incredibly detailed. It took a full year to make the staircase of Casa Doom that they run across and jump as they're yep. fleeing the Balrog. It was 21 feet tall, 66 feet long. So like, these are not miniature miniatures. Apparently they would look at, da- like during dailies, every once in a while, like a lizard would be crawling up the side of the uh, staircase that they hadn't seen. So it looked like something out of the Lost World because it was like so large in relation to the rest of the miniature. Uh, now, of course, everything that's happening on the Weta Workshop side has to be matched by the Weta Digital side. They brought in over 200 animators from around the world, but the problem is they didn't have a workflow. So like ILM had established a workflow at this point where it was an assembly line. They would have a shot and you would have one group of people that would be doing compositing, one group of people that would be doing designing and then animating and then rendering. It was total disarray. And apparently New Line stepped in at this point and had to put their foot down. They fired the two top heads of Weta and they inserted Jim Rigel, an animation veteran who had worked on Alien 3. Listen to our episode on that. Starship Troopers, we will be doing an episode on that. And Last Action Hero, listen to our episode on that. He came in and apparently he was really convinced like, oh my God, New Zealand, I'm going to have to ship all this work back to LA. And when he showed up, it was disorganized, but he was like, holy shit, they are pioneering things that have never been done in the rest of the world here. Mm-hmm. We'll get into this more when we get to Gollum in our final episode. There were some elements that were beyond Weta, though. For example, the water effects needed to accomplish that surge of river that looks like horses that With Arwen the horses, yeah. summons. Digital, digital Domain, who had obviously been doing water effects for James Cameron. For James Cameron. They actually handled that shot. That was the one shot in Fellowship that was handled in North America, I believe. A few other folks I just want to mention in production. Andrew Lesney was brought on as cinematographer. He had been the cinematographer on Babe and Babe Pig in the City. Oh. Excellent. Excellent films. And uh, this is because Jackson's usual cinematographer, Alan Bollinger, couldn't commit two years of his life to the project. So Andrew Lesney was brought in. Grant Major was brought on as production designer. Dan Henna joined as art director. He is largely responsible for scouting New Zealand to find all of the perfect locations for Hobbiton and Mordor and Rohan, etc. Ingela Dixon took on the shared role of costume designer with Richard Taylor. And then Peter King and Peter Owen designed the makeup and hair. And I just want to highlight, there were 2,500 people working on this movie. I can't name them all, but they all did such incredible work. Check out the credits on this movie. As I mentioned, the wigs were extremely high fidelity. Legolas's cost upwards of $15,000. And the Hobbit wigs were apparently primarily sourced from Russian hair. Women in Russia, apparently. What Peter Jackson said. So on October 11th, 1999, after months and months and months of pre-production, weeks and weeks of training, they begin production on Lord of the Rings. And Lizzie, do you know what the first shot of the film is? Um, It's the shot where they're hiding underneath the tree on the road as the ring race comes on the path above them. They wouldn't be able to shoot with Gandalf until the new year, but they had the rest of their cast, or so they thought, on the third day, third day of principal photography while shooting this scene, producer Barry Osborne steps up next to Peter Jackson. Peter Jackson turns to him and says, Barry, I don't think I can work with Stuart. I don't think it's going to work out. Stuart Townsend obviously is supposed to play Aragorn, and the first shots of him in The Prancing Pony were scheduled for the following week. So they fired Stuart Townsend during the first week of production. What happened? He hadn't even shot anything. So apparently, the truth is, ever since Townsend had gotten to New Zealand, Jackson 
and Boyens and Walsh could tell that something was wrong. He didn't want to participate in a lot of the cast activities. He apparently didn't show up for a lot of training. He didn't want to rehearse. What? And he would just say, it's okay, we'll get it on the day. Philippa Boyens would later say that it really felt like he was very insecure about having gotten the role and that she felt he had internalized New Line's belief that he was too young for the part. And so he was almost like frozen up and didn't feel like he could do it. They fired him and it sent ripples through the production as well as Hollywood at large. New Line ran damage control. They issued an announcement. It's not a problem on set. It was just bad chemistry. It wasn't the right fit. The press ran wild with it. And then, of course, Townsend, who was feeling pretty burned, gave a quote shortly afterwards that was very negative toward the production, basically saying, I'd been there for two months working, and I got canned right before I was supposed to start shooting, which was true. He also apparently didn't get paid because he had not put anything to film. Oh, no. So he got burnt pretty bad on this one. The cast got pretty spooked as well. Like Sean Astin said, he felt like it was the right decision, but they all realized, holy shit, this the stakes are high. If we're not right for one of these parts, we're going to be gone. Yeah. Uh, In the end, though, realizing this mistake led to, I think, probably the best casting decision outside of McKellen, Mm -hmm. Kate Blanchett, and Elijah Wood, and that is Viggo Mortensen as Aragorn. Yeah. But he wouldn't arrive in time to shoot at the Prancing Pony. In fact, when Peter Jackson shot that scene for the first time, and they look into the corner, that guy's been eyeing you from the moment we came in, there was no one sitting in the corner. They had not yet cast... Viggo Mortensen, they didn't know who Strider was going to be. So Mark Rodesky, that New Line executive who had long championed Peter Jackson, gets a call from Barry Osborne saying, Townsend's out. Ordesky hung up the phone, he threw up, and then he wrote down <sighs> three names, Russell Crowe, Jason Patrick, and Viggo Mortensen. Meanwhile, Peter Jackson was similarly considering going back to Russell Crowe with the bigger part of Aragorn. Boyens and Walsh pitch him Mortensen. Now, he's not an obvious choice at the time. He had broken in with a tiny role in Witness. He'd had supporting Mm -hmm. roles in G.I. Jane, A Perfect Murder, and Daylight. But he was not a huge name. But they did think he was perfect for the part. And that's because he is Aragorn in real life. (laughs) He's half Danish, half American, raised in a land that was not his own, Argentina, then brought to New York for education. He is truly a man of the world. He is a writer, a poet. He'd been a dock worker. He'd sold flowers. He never turned himself over to the Hollywood life. He would ride his horse into the wilderness for days at a time. He spoke English, Danish, French, and Spanish fluently, and he was obsessed with Nordic and Icelandic sagas. He's Aragorn in real life. It's crazy. (laughs) So before they go to Vigo, they did offer the part to Russell Crowe. But again, he passed. It was too close to Gladiator. Which, again, would have been good. He's great. Yeah. he would, And he, it was like right at that right point in his career. Maybe not as fun. No, not as to fun. To be on set with for two years. <laughs> there would have been some broken phones in those hotels. Uh, so <laughs> they go to Vigo. The only problem is they need him in New Zealand in two days. Well, actually, the only problem is they don't know where Vigo Mortensen is. So they send the script to his agent. <laughs> And they wait. So Peter Jackson's filming these scenes without Strider at the Prancing Pony, and Mortensen calls from a payphone somewhere in Iowa. Jackson's not in the production offices, so Fran Walsh and Philip Boyens pick up the phone, and they discuss the character with him. He then hangs up and says he'll think about it. By the way, apparently he talks extremely slow and puts incredibly Mm -hmm. long pauses into his conversations, so they couldn't tell if the call had cut out or if he was just waiting to speak on these calls. 
So then he calls back again, and it's just Philippa Boyens in the office. So this is crazy. She has no screenwriting credits to her name. You know what I mean, Philippa, at this point. And she's like, I am the one person that is about to secure Viggo Mortensen for this production. And he asks her, how old was I when I was taken to the elves? And Philippa Boyens, Tolkien expert, goes, you were two years old. And then he says, (laughs) I'd like to talk to the director. So Peter Jackson gets called back (laughs) from set. And apparently they have a very uncomfortable conversation because Peter Jackson does not understand why he is speaking so slow. (laughs) And he is convinced it's because he's not interested in the project. So Peter Jackson's like, I gotta get back to set. And he ends the call by saying, thanks for reading the scripts. I guess I should get back to set. And then Mortensen apparently just doesn't say anything for, I don't know how long. And then he just goes, well, I guess I'll see you next Tuesday. And then he hangs up. And that's how Jackson (laughs) knew that Mortensen took the role. Uh, what they didn't know oh was that he was, he was originally going to pass. He didn't want to be away from his 11-year-old son, Henry. Turns out Henry, huge Lord of the Rings fan. And when Viggo's like, yeah, it's this guy, Aragorn, Henry goes, Dad, you have to play him. Aww. So 48 hours, he shows up on set in full Aragorn attire. It's day 12 of production. And we have our Aragorn. Now, I do want to, Lizzie, do a brief moment to explain how sprawling this production was because it's mind-boggling. So New Zealand covers 104,000 miles, square miles, across two main islands, and there are also 700 small islands that are also part of the country. Oh my God, I did not know that. It's one of the most geographically diverse countries in the world. It's also, as I mentioned, nearly empty in terms of population density. In 1999, its its population was 3.85 million people, roughly the equivalent to today's Los Angeles. Its geographic diversity is unparalleled. It is the perfect place to create Middle Earth. Uh, Across this country canvas, Jackson and his team had 2,500 cast and crew members. They obviously shot over 274 shooting days. And the only way they could accomplish that is by splitting up into up to seven different shooting units at the same time, all which were fed back to Peter Jackson by a satellite system put up by the New Zealand government and military so he could sit at his bank of monitors on whatever set he was at and watch the takes of all of the action being shot all the way around the country. New Zealand is kicking ass to make (laughs) the Lord of the Rings. So... He would direct the primary unit, which would oftentimes be actually split into two units, an A unit and a B unit. Then there would always be a second unit and a third unit. And then there was always a miniature unit shooting. And there was always a blue screen unit shooting. Then on some days, they also had the helicopter unit shooting. And then they had a digital unit shooting other landscapes. And then eventually they had the golem unit shooting as well. Wait, okay, so how many units is normal for a a film of this scale? Like three? Three Four, maybe five, you know, depending okay, on what seven you're doing. is what no. I'm hearing. And it wasn't always seven, but it would reach seven. Uh, the point is, he's not the only director on this film. Yes, ultimately, his word right. goes. Fran Walsh directed many of the scenes in the film and, very importantly, very much ushered Gollum into being, as we'll get to. Uh, Jeff Murphy, a young New Zealand director in his own right, John Mahaffey, the Steadicam operator from Heavenly Creatures, Rick Porras, Richard Bluck, David Norris, and even producer Barry Osborne all directed units on this film. As I mentioned, they set up a satellite system to get Jackson the footage in real time. The schedule was an intricate clockwork design, 
that necessitated that the actors perform scenes across all three films on a day-to-day basis. It's often said that these films were shot back-to-back. That's not true. They were shot all at the same time. For example, Ian McKellen often had days in which he both played Gandalf the Grey and Gandalf the White. So after a month of shooting in Wellington, that's where all of Weta's offices and stages are, they splinter the production, and it would operate like this for 16 months. They send Liv Tyler to the southern tip of the South Island to be chased by, by Ring Race, while Peter Jackson is shooting with the hobbits in the marshes on the North Island. They're shooting in sensitive preserve areas. They have to get the military to help them out, building roads into these desperate, you know, desolate locations in the middle of nowhere. They wrap shooting at the Prancing Pony, and this is where the entire main cast and director of the film almost died, and we almost never got (laughs) these movies. They wrap at the Prancing Pony. They need to get to the Southern Island as fast as possible. So they're like, Pete, don't worry. We chartered you a plane. We're going to put you, Barry Osborne, Elijah Wood, Dominique Monaghan, Billy Boyd, and Orlando Bloom with some other crew on this plane and get you to the South Island. Well, they get to the airport, and Pete Jackson apparently is a pretty nervous flyer. It's not a 737. It's a World War II-era Douglas DC-3, the very plane that transports uh, Indiana Jones in Raiders of the Lost Ark, if you guys have seen that footage. No, absolutely not. Well, Lizzie, this plane's first flight had been in 1943 transporting American troops to Guadalcanal. It had the same paint job as uh, when it had done that. Adding insult to injury, there was no ground crew at the airport to help them load the camera gear. So Jackson and the Hobbits were doing a human line to get all the camera gear into the back of the plane. Then they get in the plane and the pilot's like, oh, just so you know, this plane's only designed to hold 12,000 pounds and we're a bit over that. So it could have a bit of trouble leaving the ground. Uh, so according to Peter Jackson, <laughs> the plane ran out of runway, doesn't clear the ground, is like floating over the top of the water and the pilot's like pulling up on the on the joystick, and they finally clear the water and fly directly into a growing storm that apparently was like some of the worst turbulence of all time. Oh my God. They make it to the Southern Island. They start shooting, and Jackson's like, I'm not getting another plane. So he has to get to Queenstown, which is on the other tip of the Southern Island. He's like, I'm going to rent a car. We're going to drive. So he and Barry Osborne go in one car, and Orlando Bloom and Sean Bean are in another car following them. The storm gets worse and worse and worse. They're in the middle of the night. They realize we're going to run out of gas. There's nothing around us. They're driving through a mountain pass. It's literally called the Southern Alps. They have no cell service, no food, no shelter. They lose sight of Orlando Bloom and Sean Bean's car behind them. They don't know where they are. They reach a gas station that's got an attached living quarters. They stop. They wake the tenant up. It's like the middle of the night. They pay them 500 bucks and spend the night. They're like, we hope Orlando Bloom and Sean Bean are alive. Listen, if there's one car of people that's going to be okay in this situation, I think it's Orlando (laughs) Bloom and Sean Sean Bean. The hottest car in the world. Uh, Truly. (laughs) So apparently they got blocked in by double mudslides. So like they they were going up the road and the road had been caved in with a mudslide. They tried to reverse and the road had been caved in with a mudslide. They get out of the car and there's a lone cabin out on the moor. And they're just like, I guess we should go check it out. They go up to this cabin <laughs> and a, just a single old woman lives there. And she very wow, kindly- best day of her life. <laughs> she invites them in for tea and they apparently stay there and they live there for four days because they <laughs> can't get a helicopter to them for four days. So they send a helicopter in and apparently it's still really stormy. So they get in the helicopter and Sean Bean hates helicopters. He hates flying. And according to both him and Bloom, his hand was just like, 
vice gripped on Orlando Bloom's thigh for the entire helicopter Aww. ride. <laughs> so meanwhile, they're supposed to shoot this river sequence. Uh, the fellowship's going to navigate these rapids as the Urukai shoot arrows at them from the shore. The schedule's so tight, they've lost four days. Peter Jackson just cuts it. He's like, this is out of the movie. We're just not shooting it. It's just not happening. Great. Didn't need it. He would later add the uh, barrel river scene in The Hobbit as kind of an homage to that lost scene. We're not going to talk about that today. They move on to Lake Alta, this high alpine lake in The Remarkables. And Sean Bean's like, I cannot ride in a helicopter again. And they're like, Sean, there's no road. We have to take a helicopter. (laughs) It's like sheer mountain face. And he goes, fuck it, I'll climb. So they have a (gasps) dawn call and Sean Bean gets up hours before call in full costume, sword and shield, and just climbs up the side of this mountain, followed by his makeup girl to get to set for the dawn call time. Oh my god! Everyone his is poor just, makeup lady. I know. She's everyone's just like, going like, "Are you like sure? Full, Are you sure you don't want to take the helicopter?" Full boss mode. Uh, it's amazing. <laughs> They're eight weeks into the shoot now, and the weather has just ground them to a halt. They can't shoot any more outdoor stuff. So they don't have Gandalf and they improvise. And so they literally bring one of the sets from Wellington, the stairs of Sirith Ungol. This is like, I think late in the third film, it's the sheer staircase they go up when Gollum mm-hmm. has convinced Frodo that Sam is trying to take the ring from him. And right, like, on the way to Shelob's Yeah, lair. and they're like, um, sorry, Frodo, sorry guys, you got to shoot this emotional scene from the third, like the second, the third film at this point. Right now, two months into our production, they build this set in the squash court of the hotel, and then they fill in the rest of it digitally. They didn't know how they were going to do Gollum yet, and Sean Astin gets the short end of the stick. Jackson flips a coin to see whose coverage they're going to shoot first. They shoot Sean Astin's that day. Then the weather clears, and they didn't finish the scene for another year until their scheduled scene. So when you watch that scene, the performances of Sean Astin and Elijah Wood are filmed a year apart which is crazy. That kind of makes sense because Elijah Wood, at the, it almost works because Elijah Wood at that point is like so, so gaunt dragged and, yeah. down by yeah. the ring and so tired that like it does look very different from Sean Astin. It does. Uh, so the last scenes they shot before Christmas break were Boromir's death. And these scenes really galvanized the crew. Apparently, not only does Sean Bean give a remarkable performance, um, yeah, that it's my favorite scene in the entire series, and I think that people really on set understood that there would be gravity to what they were making. This was not—they knew it wasn't going to just look like a fantasy film, but then they really knew it wasn't going to feel like the fantasy films that they'd known. So obviously, they come back to production in January of 2000, and Ian McKellen shows up right on time because a wizard is never late. Yes. So on January 17th, Gandalf walks onto the set. And although he would, I would argue, set the tone for the film with his voice, no one committed to their character like Viggo Mortensen did with Aragorn. Uh, I don't know if this would have annoyed me or if I would have loved him. <laughs> Apparently, he would camp out on location the night before a dawn shooting call. He also would insist they keep filming no matter what the weather, even if it was getting dangerous. He only used, <laughs> he only used his hero sword for all shots. He broke a tooth during a battle scene and then wanted to keep going, so he glued it back in with chewing gum. 
He hit a rabbit with his car, then collected the carcass, roasted it, and ate it, because that's what Aragorn uh, would do. Okay. And apparently, he would practice his sword moves on the sidewalks outside in Wellington until somebody called the police saying that a crazy man was singing a full-on broadsword in public. The police showed up, he explained what was happening, and they let him off after he took photos with locals. Uh <laughs> When they shot the scenes outside the Black Gates of Mordor, they needed a stretch of desert. Apparently, this is actually the one thing that New Zealand does not have in spades is desert. There's one 40-square-mile area. Well, unfortunately, that's also the one spot that the army had found where they could explode bombs and test out their new ordinance. So they go, hey, military, you've been helping us out. Could you clear the bombs out? So the military goes out. They clear a bunch of them, but they're like, just to be safe, stick inside these little roped off areas and don't go outside of them because if you do, you literally could (laughs) explode. So they're shooting out there and there's a take where Mortensen charges off on his horse and Mm -hmm. he doesn't hear cut and he forgets about the boundary. And so he keeps going and going and then he hears nothing. So he turns around, assuming the shot's done. Turns out what he couldn't hear over the horse was the entire cast and crew screaming at him that he had gone like 100 yards out into basically a minefield. And luckily, he made it back in one piece and did not hit any unexploded ordnance. Uh, oh, my God. Yeah. Now, Peter Jackson, of course, had to shoot very fast. He was not doing a Kubrickian or David Fincher-like approach with this film. But as he was getting his sea legs at the beginning, he would shoot sometimes up to 15 takes, apparently. And by the by the time he was towards the end of production, it was six or seven takes. Now, for mm-hmm. most people, 15 takes, that's not absurd. Uh, Christopher Lee, however, disagreed. He told Jackson, I have done entire movies where I have done less than 15 takes. <laughs> and he was so frustrated that he would have to do more than two takes on any given scene because, of course, the Hammer Monster films that he'd done you would not do very many takes. Uh, there are, of course, still constant battles with New Line over things to keep and things to cut. One example, the Watcher in the Water outside of Moria. New Line was like, we need to cut that. We don't need it. They can just go straight into Moria. It's going to be very expensive. The effects are going to be very expensive. So Jackson actually shot that scene on his own time, effectively paying for it himself in order to compromise with the studio. And this is the, like, octopus thing. That- yes, the octopus outside of the... Uh, I mean, you do need it because it blocks them into Moria. I agree. They were like, couldn't we just see them open the door and then they're deep in Moria afterwards? As I mentioned, John Rhys-Davies had a bit of a lonely experience on the film. And part of that was because he actually had an allergic reaction to the silicon skin that they put on. So they wanted dwarves to have a rougher textured skin than he had. So they would add this silicon skin to his face which apparently caused like a horrible eczema outbreak to the point where his skin was cracked and bleeding. The makeup artist on set actually then invented, the best thing I can describe it as, it's like almost like a condom. It was a piece of almost cotton that went between the silicon and the face that has since been used by Weta Workshop and other uh, makeup houses in order to apply prosthetics to sensitive skin. So again, some good came out of it. So... As the shoot stretches into its second year, the executives in LA are getting antsy. Shea and New Line need to placate their investors and distributors. 
they're getting increasing pressure from across the board to prove the prudence of their investment. Let's also remember they just released Little Nikki and Town and Country. <laughs> Things are not going great in oh, no. Los Angeles. <laughs> they had also apparently blown a right to buy the rights to Blair Witch Project, which had then become obviously oh, a huge success. Yeah. So in December of 2000, as the production's taking a break, Shay and a group of New Line's closest partners get flown to New Zealand to see a work in progress of what they've filmed. This is the test for Peter Jackson. He chooses to show the now almost finished sequence where Boromir dies. They play the scene, the lights come up, and Michael Lynn, who was Bob Shay's partner at New Line, finally breaks the silence and said, quote, my God, it actually has drama. They finally understood what Jackson had said all along. This was not a fantasy film. In fact, yeah. they thought this could be one of the best films to come out in recent memory. So they're emboldened, Lizzie, by what they've seen. And they decide to take a very big risk. They're going to show the world a sample of what they've been investing hundreds of millions of dollars into. Not a trailer, not some sort of online snippet. They're going to host a screening at the Cannes Film Festival in 2001, seven months before the advance before the release of The Fellowship of the Ring, and they're going to show the press 30 minutes of the films. Oh, wow. Which is like not, had not been done at this point in time. It's a very shrewd marketing move, not only priming the world through tastemakers as to what's to come, but it's also a calculated play to go head on at the very outlets that have been saying that they're wasting all of their money making these movements, making these movies. So at first, Shay suggests, why don't we just do like a bunch of the best moments of all the films, like a giant trailer. And Jackson's like, no, no, no. It should be a 25-minute stretch of the film. And he's like, it should just be the Moria sequence. Everything when they're underground. Shay then watched it and said, the cave troll sequence is amazing, but this is all set work. You guys have these amazing exterior shots around your country. So... Ironically, they actually worked together to create an amazing compromise. The reel would open with shots and scenes from Hobbiton, basically five minutes of that. And then you would get 14 minutes of pure cave troll action sandwiched by sweeping shots from all three films showing epic moments at the very end of the reel. At 10 a.m. on Friday, May 11th, 2001, a group of press and industry folks waited in line outside of Cannes not to see the new Coen Brothers film that was headlining the festival, The Man Who Wasn't There, but nearly 30 minutes of this mysterious Lord of the Rings movie that had been shooting in New Zealand on the other side of the world for the last 18 months. There were no posters. There was no red carpet. There was no step and repeat. There was just a theater called the Olympia 2 that was very old. Although New Line apparently spent $500,000 replacing the entire sound system before they allowed the screening to happen there. Wow. It was a full circle moment for Jackson. This is the same exact theater where he had screened Bad Taste, his first film, at the underground Cannes film market 10 years earlier when he was still living in his parents' basement. Aww. He goes up to the front of the crowd with Bob Shea. Bob Shea is apparently in a suit. Peter Jackson's in a pair of shorts. They had to convince him to wear shoes. He gives a brief intro. Some of the music's temp. We pulled it from Gladiator and The Last of the Mohicans. 
But the cave troll scene had been scored by their composer, Howard Shore. So they were going to hear some of the real music from the film. He nervously stepped away. Bob Shea followed. The lights go down and the picture goes up. Apparently, Hobbiton, people gasped. They just couldn't believe that it looked like what they'd imagined Tolkien's books would look like. Then the cave troll scene plays and it blows people's goddamn minds. The cave troll itself, rendered in stunning detail, which still looks great today. It does. It looks really good. Had been developed by Weta in a very different way than other design houses. They had first built the cave troll skeleton, then added muscles and skin and hair. And this is a process that they would refine to near perfection with the Planet of the Apes series 15 years later. Jackson also shot the scene entirely handheld with that virtual camera in previs something that had never been done before. The scene had a heft and a movement that wasn't felt with CGI characters outside of Jurassic Park. His horror roots were also present. This scene has tons of orc blood being spread all over the walls, as well as his amazing sense of humor. Sean Bean's They've Got a Cave Troll will always kill me (laughs) in these scenes. Furthermore, the monsters weren't just monstrous. So for example, with the cave troll, Weta had created a haunting backstory for this character, deciding he should just be a baby, lured in by this uh, to be the flunky of the orcs. And when he dies, it's like kind of tragic. It seems like he doesn't understand what's happening, giving the victory of the fellowship an ambiguous quality. This was not going to be the morally black and white world of hyperbole and silification that Tolkien feared his stories would be reduced to. This was serious fantasy. As Jackson had always said, this was more Braveheart than it was Excalibur. The sequence ended with the Balrog stepping out of the smoke on the bridge of Khazad-dûm and then followed shots of Helm's Deep, Edoras, Osgiliath, Theoden, Minas Tirith, the charging Rohirrim, and then of course Frodo clutching the ring at the cracks of doom. The lights go off and apparently people just go apeshit. All around the festival, nobody's talking about the films at the festival. They're just talking about the secret Lord of the Rings screening that a few people got to go to. Marco Deski said that one of their foreign distributors, so one of the groups that was relying on New Line to make this a good movie, came up picked Mark Tordeski up off the ground and kissed him on the mouth. He was so relieved that these movies were good. Word spreads like wildfire. Lord of the Rings is the talk of Cannes. New York Times and BBC run stories on how it perfectly captures Middle Earth and Ain't It Cool News leads with the headline, quote, oh my God, fucking cool, wow, double exclamation point. (laughs) New Line followed the screening with a $2 million party. They flew out the cast and the crew, Jackson's Brain Trust's, Philippa Boyens, Fran Walsh, Richard Taylor, Barry Osborne, makes them all available to the press. At sunset, nine Nazgul riders on horseback ride up and down the driveway to the party. They had brought in extras playing orcs to be stationed in full makeup and costume all around the party for photographs. And then they had also- It's the best party in the world. It's the best party (laughs) in the world. They had flown up entire sections of the set and rebuilt them in this French warehouse where they were hosting the party so that hardy goers could go and explore Bag End and speak friend and enter at Durin's Gate, etc. Famously, there were photos, framed photos of the cast along a far wall and Christopher Lee was observed simply walking up, taking his photo off the wall and taking it with him when he left the party, which I just think is amazing. You have to respect that they did this. It is an it's like a baller. It's a baller move. They follow up with a six-month publicity blackout. They'd given the world a taste, and now they wanted to leave them wanting more. 
And the truth is that the true Tolkien fans, Lizzie, did want more. Specifically, they were wondering where one important character was who never showed up in the showreel at all. The question lingered, how the hell was Peter Jackson going to pull off Gollum? And that's a question that we will answer in the final installment of no. our coverage of The Lord of the Rings. <laughs> oh my God. Oh, I love these movies Similarly so much. Similarly to the, to the seventh hour of these movies, I'm both very excited for the <laughs> and conclusion and ready for it to be yeah. done. <laughs> Guys, thanks so much for listening to part two of our coverage of The Lord of the Rings. Please come back in two weeks for part three, where we conclude the trilogy with post-production, the release, and the incredible technology that Weta Digital pioneered to bring Gollum to life, one of the greatest characters that has ever graced the silver screen. As always- I'm so excited. If you enjoyed this podcast, leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. If you didn't enjoy this podcast, honestly, I don't know what to tell you. I feel like Lord of the Rings is so entertaining, guys. Come on. Lizzie, our Patreon full stop members, could you give them a shout out for us this week? I certainly can. Thank you so much to Soman Chainani and Tom Kristen for continuing to support us. You're the best. Thank you. We really appreciate you guys. Check out our Patreon, patreon.com slash whatwentwrongpodcast. And if you join our Patreon, you can vote in our poll for one of the next movies that we will cover. And the options, Back to the Future, Galaxy Quest, Star Trek The Motion Picture, and Brazil. Terry Gilliam's incredible sci-fi film. So if you would like to vote, please join our Patreon. Anything else, Lizzie? Yes, as a reminder, if you have any horror stories, funny stories, any stories you would like to send us from your time on any sets, please send them to us. You can contact us via DM on Instagram. You can also, again, email us at whatwentwrongpod at gmail.com. We would love to hear from you. You can absolutely be anonymous if you would like to be. Just let us know. We are collecting those. So if you would like to be featured in one of our bonus episodes, please send in your story. That's it. Come back in two weeks as we travel to the gates of Mordor. Mordor. Go to patreon.com slash whatwentwrongpodcast to support what went wrong and gain access to bonus episodes, video content, and more. What Went Wrong is a Sad Boom podcast presented by Lizzie Bassett and Chris Winterbauer. Editing and music by David Bowman with cover art from Euthana Uos. 